This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Trump administration official Peter Navarro discusses his book, Taking Back Trump's America. He offers his thoughts on how President Trump could win the 2024 presidential election. This is the second book uh, of of what's going to be eventually a trilogy on uh, the Trump administration. And this, this focuses primarily on this phenomenon under Reagan where personnel is policy, where... Uh, who you put in the White House uh, can either be good or bad, depending on whether they're in sync with the president. So that's that's part of the focus of this. He's interviewed by David Drucker, a senior political correspondent for The Washington Examiner. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Peter Navarro, thanks so much for being with us here on C-SPAN and Book TV. Great to be here. Honor, by the way, and pleasure. I've always been a fan of the uh, long-form interviews on C-SPAN and done one other one. And um, it's, a, it's a nice way to talk about uh, labor of love, which is taking back Trump's America. I will try and uh, live up to the expectations you have for the program. The book, of course, is Taking Back Trump's America. Peter Navarro is the author. It is your second book about Donald Trump, correct, and his administration. It's uh, the second uh, memoir from... Um, I, I have a unique advantage, David. I, I am one of only three senior advisors in the White House who was with the president all the way from the campaign in 2016 to the end. So I, uh, I literally was in all the rooms, uh, to coin the phrase of somebody else, where it happened... And um, I was at the, it, the, the campaign was really important because that's where the steel of MAGA was forged. That's where we developed a lot of the messaging and policies that we would implement later during his term. So this is the second book um, of, of what's going to be eventually a trilogy on um, the Trump administration. And this, this focuses primarily on this phenomenon under Reagan where personnel is policy, where um, who you put in the White House uh, can either be good or bad, depending on whether they're in sync with the president. So that's that's part of the focus of this. And, of course, prospectively, um, uh, at the title, Taking Back Trump's America, obviously is also oriented towards the future. And I want to get into a number of those uh, areas that you cover in Taking Back Trump's America. But I... I just wanted to touch briefly on your background. Uh, We're both originally Californians, and uh, I don't know if many people know that, um, and I find this supremely ironic, but that you uh, were involved in politics once before, uh, many years ago in San Diego. You ran for mayor. Um, And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but from doing my research, you... Uh, were very active in San Diego back in the 90s trying to um, tamp down on real estate development. There was a concern at the time among some people in San Diego that um, as beautiful a part of the country as that is, that people wanted to make it like another Los Angeles, and that you were active in in trying to stop that from happening, you end up working for a real estate developer and, and former President Donald Trump. Oh, I see the irony there. Yeah. yeah t- uh, talk about how that experience shaped you and and, and um, if, if you brought any of that with you uh, to the White House when you first went to work for the former president. Sure. Uh, if, first of all, I wasn't against real estate development. What I was against uh, was uh, uncontrolled growth where the real estate developers would come in, throw down 4,000 houses in a subdivision and not provide the roads and the schools and the sewer uh, and thereby shift the tax burden to existing residents um, and to spoil what today 
remains America's finest city in terms of pure beauty. I mean, it's a, it's a traffic nightmare, and there's still issues with some of the environmental issues out there. But <clears throat> I, I think the, uh, the parallel between what, what I did in 1992 and running for mayor um, and what Donald Trump did in 2016, there is, there is a small parallel there in that we're both populist economic nationalists. I was, uh, I was doing that at the local level. You might be interested to know, even my focus back then was trying to maintain a manufacturing base in San Diego. We were losing our shipyards there, which were an important part um, of the economy. We were losing our, our aircraft manufacturing, which was kind of the heart and soul of the West Coast um, building in World War II for the war effort. And I'm, I'm a pragmatist and an economist. And so what I try to do is figure out you know, what pro- the problems are and what the solutions are. Working, uh, Donald Trump was a real estate developer in Manhattan and, and around the world. Um, but, but he was first and foremost a businessman. And early on, he understood that uh, unfair trade was uh, the major problem facing this economy as we were seeing our manufacturing base offshore. And the way we got together, and it's related in the Taking Back Trump's America book, um, the the convergence of our paths um, started in 2006 when I published a book called The Coming China Wars, which basically described how China's economic aggression subsidies, currency manipulation, stealing our intellectual property, how those kinds of aggression were just debilitating, destroying, and exporting our manufacturing base to China. Trump read the book in 2011. He placed it in its top 10. And uh, when I saw that in the LA Times, our local paper back there when you were there, uh, I, I reached out to Rona Graf, his assistant, and we began a correspondence. And so when he ran for office, um, I told him, I'm, I'm all in, whatever you can do to help, and the rest is kind of the how I sit here today. <laughs> uh, you were, uh, as you mentioned, one of the few people to survive all four years in the West Wing. There was a lot of turnover. There isn't a lot of uh, White Houses, a lot of turnover. It's a very tough job, whatever position you're in, yeah. a lot of demanding hours. Uh, but... You, but Few people survive all four years. Only three of us. Uh, in taking back Trump's America, one of the first things that struck me, and it was in the beginning of the book, but throughout the book, you you talk about the fact that uh, Trump lost to Joe Biden in 2020. Now, it, I wanted to ask you about this. Toward the very end of the book, you talk about the idea that the you write about the idea that the election was stolen. Or that in some of these swing states, you believe the election wasn't uh, properly decided. But you were very, in the beginning of the book and throughout the book, very critical of how the 2020 re-election campaign was run versus yeah. how the 2016 campaign was run. So which is it? Did Trump lose? Because if you talk to President, former President Donald Trump about this, he doesn't complain about how his campaign was run. He says that he won and it was stolen. You are very critical of how his re-election campaign was won and talk and write about it in terms of him losing. Um, and you're one of the few people, uh, what I would say is you're one of the few Trump loyalists who talk about Trump the way you do that acknowledge, seem to acknowledge that he, his re-election campaign was legitimately a failure and that it did not win. The... Um the, the fine point here, and I understand that this remains a, a disputed election, uh, at least in the public's mind. If you look at the, at the public polling on this, uh, half or well more of half of the country believe that that election was somehow um, not right. Okay. Now, what I do say here, the fine point here, is that the mistakes, the five strategic failures, it wasn't just... Um, the, the, one of the worst campaigns in presidential history run, um, it, it was made close enough to steal. Okay, that's, that's a fine point there, but it's an important one. If you look at the margins of um, victory for Joe Biden in the, in the five 
states where it mattered. You had extremely thin margins in, in Georgia and Arizona, about 12,000 votes in each. Uh, you had um, relatively small margins in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And my point in the book was that given how this campaign could have gone forward, both on policy, China, buy American, make America great again, um, and on just the mechanics of running the campaign itself, uh, in my judgment, it could and should have been a landslide. But because of what I described in Taking Back Trump's America, five strategic errors made not by the president himself, but by the people around him, uh, that election was close, closer than it should have been. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, how you discussed former president versus the people around him. Sure. Um, first of all, it seems like you have a lot of scores to settle, and you were very critical in taking back Trump's America of just about everybody that worked in the White House except for yourself. Now, nobody writes a book to be critical of themselves, and I understand that. But just you know, for, the, yeah. for people to understand, you don't pull any punches. You're very critical, and I, and I had to make a list here. Reince Priebus, former chief of staff, Gary Cohn, former... Chief Economic Advisor, Rob Porter, former Staff Secretary, Jared Kushner, the former president's uh, son-in-law, but sort of every man of everything, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, uh, former campaign manager who was ultimately fired before the 2020 uh, re-elect completed, Brad Parscale, and there are others. Um, let me let me work through that, uh, but, but at the same time, let me say that I've worked with... Um, as many or more great people for those four years of the Trump administration. And in Taking Back Trump's America, at the end, I have a chapter that's, that's the dream cabinet as well as the dream officials in the West Wing. And many of them are old blood in the sense of veterans. And just let me track that a little bit so you, you understand that there's, a, there's, there's an interesting balance here between kind of the rhino, Republican and name only wing that we brought in, and I'll explain that in a little bit, versus the, the true Trump competent loyalists. You take Robert O'Brien, for example, the, the fourth um, national security advisor in the West Wing. He did a phenomenal job, and I recommend him as Secretary of State, future administration. A couple of, like three cabinet officials. I love Dan Brule at the Department of Energy. Wilkie at, at uh, Veterans Affairs, and one of my favorites um, was was David Bernhardt in Interior. I remember calling David one day and said, "Hey, um, I just found out that that you guys are flying these communist Chinese drones over sensitive government lands. That's that's a national security risk, according to the intel." And he had that solved within a day. And then people in the West Wing, um, Cash Patel. Uh, would would be great. So there's a lot of I, I, want, I don't want to get the impression that I was critical of everything. It's just the opposite, and it's not for me. It's not score settling. That's that's totally the wrong meaning to take away. And I hope people don't take that because um, you know Jared Kushner, for example, I'm very critical of him, but I got along quite well with him. What I'm trying to do in taking back Trump's America is is provide an accurate historical account of how White Houses should and sometimes don't work. And the original sin in this administration happened the day after the November 8, 2016 election. There was a decision made uh, to bring in the, Repu the, the traditional Republican wing of the party, Reince Priebus from the National Republican National Committee, the Mitch McConnell wing, and the, the, the Bush-Cheney wing, and the, the, the concept here, and it, it seemed logical at the time, was that this was a big government to staff, and that if these folks came in, they would adhere to President Trump's vision. Um, and that didn't happen. I remember there's a great story in the Taking Back Trump's America about sitting in the Roosevelt Room a few months into the administration, the president is, is, is increasingly restive, times angry about the slow pace 
of our trade and tariff policies. We ran on that. This was important in key states like Ohio, Ohio, Ohio. So we sit, we're sitting there in the Roosevelt room. He's, he's on one side. I'm, I'm just about right across from him. We got most of the cabinet there who are, were relevant to the issue. We got everybody from the West Wing, Gary Cohn, the, uh, um, the National Economic uh, uh, Council director. We've got uh, McMaster in there. And we go around the room, and the boss is asking, you know, what's going on with this? And we get around there. <laughs> at the end, there's only two people in the room, he realizes, that support his trade policy, and that's him and me. And I see his eyebrows kind of raise and looks around. It was an epiphany for him then that there was, there was trouble there. But my point here, sir, is that this never should have happened. And the principle that I, that I have, and that's the, kind of one of the organizing principles, is the Reagan thing, personnel's policy. This is bad personnel. is not just bad policy but bad politics. And our failure in 2020, as we came into the campaign and election day, to run um, and do as hard as we could and should have on our, our basic MAGA principles, particularly the, the Buy American, particularly the, the tough on China, particularly some of the border issues, was this whole notion of strategic failures that, that, that made that election too close. And I understand all of that. I, I, um, I think what I found very sort of interesting about uh, taking back Trump's America was there seemed to be a level of disappointment and in, in, in anger, not just in the policy choices that were made at times, but you didn't think these were very good people. For instance, you referred to uh, the former agriculture, sec- uh, the, the, the former uh, ambassador to China, excuse me, under President Trump, Terry Branstad, as, and this is page 30 of the book, a sure. former sleazebag governor from the farm state of Iowa. Yeah. Now, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Maybe there's something we don't know about Terry Branson that makes him a sleazebag. Maybe he was the wrong choice for China. Maybe yeah. he wasn't simpatico, as you might say, with Trump's approach to China, but sleazebag? Yeah, let me defend that. Um, His son um, engaged in some of the worst type of foreign lobbying um, with communist China, trading off his father's uh, position in Beijing that, that you can even imagine. And his father said nothing about it. And Branstad himself was constantly trying to undermine our negotiations with China. He did not obey the president. He did not respect the United States trade representative, Robert Lighthizer. And there were a number of people who would do that. Branstad was one of them. Certainly, Jared Kushner was another. The worst one of the lot was Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. And the, the problem here, David, is that In my judgment, and and there's a lot of bipartisan agreement in this town, um, communist China is the the single most existential threat this country has ever faced. And yet we had people like Branstad and and Kushner um, and Mnuchin and Cohn and then later Kudlow constantly working at back purposes to the president and to the guy who was supposed to be doing the trade negotiations. So I, I stand uh, by that. I'll tell you three of the, the, the people who I was, and this is the president's most damning word, most disappointed in. This, um, this kind of just blew my mind. You had the three generals. Right? You had McMaster, Mattis, and John Kelly. Kelly was the chief of staff. Mattis was the secretary of defense. McMaster was the national security advisor. Now, you and I both know that the, the most important thing 
in the military for the military to work is chain of command. You're supposed to always obey the chain of command. And repeatedly, these three generals would receive direct orders, direct orders from the commander-in-chief, and they'd walk out the door and they would countermand those orders. If they were, if somebody did that to them in their chain of command, they'd be in the brig and charged appropriately. But that's the kind of thing that I witnessed. There was just a lot of say yes, do no types of personnel who thought they got elected. There's a great story about Lighthizer. He's got, he's got a really um, wry wit in t- taking back Trump's American. He said, like, after one of these knockdown dragouts we would always have in the Oval between the two, two forces, like, there's two kinds of people in the White House. It's, it's the ones that thought they had to save the world from Trump and the ones who thought Trump would save the world. And therein lies the bad personnel is not just bad policy, but bad politics tale in taking back Trump's America. And I think it's an important lesson for any future president. I mean, there, there, if you read the book, there's a, the, the, one of the early chapters, I take a tour of what I call the West Wing dumpster, because you know people have referred to the West Wing <laughs> as President Trump as a dumpster. And it's not the great, greatest place to work, because... You know, space this size, which is quite nice, um, you'd, you'd have about six offices in, 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 in this place. And so you learn, you learn how a White House works. I and mean, one of the most powerful positions, interestingly enough, in the White House is the staff secretary. I mean, who would have thought that? But this guy, Rob Porter, who came in kind of as a, a Bush Republican, wielded tremendous influence in the White House, and it would be bad influence because he was the, the, the traditional Republican who hated the tariffs, who hated the Buy American, who hated the secure borders, and he would, I liken him to Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, kind of put his thumb on the scale every once in a while and change history. You also, on page 65, refer to former... Treasury Secretary Pete Mnuchin as a never-Trumper. Steve Mnuchin. Steve Mnuchin. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. So it struck me because Steve Mnuchin was one of the first, if not the first, sort of Wall Street executives to support President Trump, to raise money for President Trump. Yes. Um, And I was with him at Trump Tower. So explain how he is a never-Trumper. There's, never, uh, they're, they're like, like, just like we had the, like the three generals who never obeyed the chain of command, um, as they describe in Taking Back Trump's America, there were a, a set of what I call the Wall Street transactionalists. Uh, they, they came in with a mindset um, that everything was a deal and that um, it wasn't necessarily... Um, anything strategic about what they did. They took a very tactical view, and they had no empathy or understanding of our base, our deplorables, blue-collar base. Mnuchin was one of them. Wilbur Ross um, was another. Gary Cohn, Larry Kudlow. And from the get-go, Mnuchin got involved in that campaign to be Treasury Secretary. There's a great story in Taking Back Trump's America where uh, I, I'm in Trump, Trump Tower in Manhattan in the war room. Um, it's about September, and um, I, I get called down to the office by, by Dave Bossy. Love Dave. <clears throat> and he was the chief operating officer um, uh, of the campaign. And I come in, and, and Steve Bannon's sitting there. Steve, of course, is, is the strategist who kind of rode to the rescue in August. And it's like, it's like there was just yet another screw-up with our, with our tax bill in the press, and it related to our mischaracterization of this thing called carried, carried interest, right? And it's mm-hmm. like Dave goes, well, what the hell happened here? And I go, <laughs> a Mnuchin stuck his head, you know, his mouth and. Yeah, yeah, God help. And so, so at one point, um, I say something like, "God help us if Mnuchin is Treasury Secretary." And Bossy says, "Yeah, God help us." And, and Bannon says, "Yeah, that'll never happen." Um, 
And the point of the story is that that, that was the transaction. Mnuchin wanted to be Treasury Secretary. He came in and a liberal Democrat, um, in, in the Neville Chamberlain of our time. And when he was in there, David, he built his Rolodex, if they have those anymore. Okay, He <laughs> built all his contacts, all of the deals he made back-channeling the Chinese and the Mexicans um, on NAFTA. Um, they will pay him dividends, okay? But he didn't give a damn about the people of America, much less the well, deplorables, well, okay. in my judgment. Okay, but I mean, in, in, in look, Steve Mnuchin does not need me to defend him, him and I'm not here to defend yeah. him, but yeah. um, anybody that works in a White House for a particular period of time in a high-profile position can quote-unquote cash in is all of a sudden a prominent figure who can sell books and deliver speeches. I think that's perfectly fine, but I don't know how his taking advantage of his White House service is any different than you taking advantage of your White House service in a perfectly normal, capitalistic American way. I guess, I guess my point is that, that Steve came in without an ideology. You know, there's, a, there's an old philosophy book I read when I was a freshman the man without qualities is qualities without a man, right? And Steve essentially has no other purpose in life but to be rich. He, he, he could care less about policy, the welfare of the American people. But, but I don't want, you know, like, if he had, I, I say in the book that there were, there were two people, if they had never darkened the door of the White House, Trump would probably still be there. He's one of them. But the bigger problem was that set of Wall Street transactors, you have to kind of scratch your head at why the head of Goldman Sachs, Gary Cohn, with Goldman Sachs being one of the most prominent uh, weapons to offshore American jobs, would ever be put in charge of economic policy in a West Wing. And what could go wrong there? Well, you know, he was adamantly opposed to Trump's tariffs, fought him tooth and nail, and wasn't until until we got him the hell out of there, that the president was actually able to go forward in a reasonable basis. Understand. The the last person I want to talk about on your hit parade is Jared Kushner. And I do so because, you number one, he is very important to President Trump, if you talk to President Trump. Yeah. And because he was very influential. Um, and throughout the book, I don't know if anybody, if I were to count it up, came under more fire uh, uh, from you than him. Now, there's nothing wrong at all uh, with criticizing Jared Kushner. I, I just wanted to talk to you sure. about why you feel it is that somebody so trusted by the former president is such a problem. Here's an example of one thing you write about on page 158 in Taking Back Trump's America. You were discussing that summit at Mar-a-Lago with uh, the Chinese Premier Xi Jinping. Yes. Yeah. Uh, president Trump was always very proud of bringing world leaders to Mar-a-Lago and, and whining and dining them, so to speak. Um, here's what you write. The Mar-a-Lago summit would turn out to be pure Trumpian pomp and circumstance, a truly grandiose summit where POTUS, and, and I'm using POTUS here because that's how you write it, would whine and dine China's president in the hopes of outfoxing and out-negotiating the most powerful dictator in the unfree world. In truth, the event was also a pure Wall Street transactionalist power play, a profiteer's pageant conjured up by Jared Kushner working but really getting worked by his, his Beijing backstreet channels. That's just one of the many things the young but not so precocious Kushner never really understood. So, um, uh, look, as a journalist, I love it when uh, yeah. people who have worked in the White House are critical of their colleagues, but explain why you think so much of the former president's downfall after one term gets back to Jared Kushner. Sure, and, and the one thing, one of the things I would say about Jared is that going into the administration, he always thought that I was uh, a, a rabid China hawk and, and way over the top in my criticisms of Beijing. But by the end, he agreed with everything I had believed. So the question I would ask is, why did I have to go through that learning curve with a 30-something person without any policy experience <coughs> who had never been there except for his family connections. Let's focus just on the mechanics of the campaign as to, as to my criticism of Jared. The, the 2016 campaign was 
was a thing of absolute beauty. It was 20 people on Trump Force One flying around to rallies uh, with a speechwriter and just running media all the time. I was back in the war room most of the time with 100 people. We were fighting the good fight every day, positive messaging, research, and then fighting back uh, against any pushback. And I actually thought from day one we would win, and we did. Trump won that race. We were outspent almost two to one by the Hillary Clinton campaign, but what Hillary did was spend most of that money on a bloated staff and misspent the money on how she timed her advertising. And we made the same damn mistake in 2020. There's a, there's a story <laughs> about how you know, monkeys with flamethrowers would, would burn cash uh, almost as fast as Jared and Parscale did because we, we ran like a Super Bowl ad. Peter Thiel gave $250,000 at one point. He wrote one check for $250,000. That check was used for two seconds of a Super Bowl ad 10 months before the election. And when we got to four, six weeks out to election day, we were out of money. We had to cancel ads, even though we raised more than Joe Biden. That alone, that alone is incompetence. And the other thing that, that, that Kushner did was have this, they were play, paying like 20-somethings, like six figures. We had a huge uh, overhead. And so it just, it just wasn't managed well. And the messaging itself was poor. Parscale, there's a great story in Taking Back Trump's America about Brad Parscale. Because I blame Parscale for bringing down the wrath of Zuckerberg and Facebook and Jack Dorsey and Twitter on Trump in 2020. And the way that story goes is Parscale gets on 60 Minutes after the 2016 campaign and tries to take credit for the win and reveals to the world that the Trump campaign actually had Facebook and Twitter employees working inside on the campaign as consultants. And that story, <laughs> that... that that did not play well in Silicon Valley. And, and I describe what happened next is kind of Newtonian physics of equal and opposite political reactions. And Zuckerberg alone, Zuckerberg alone would spend more money in the battleground states than the Trump campaign did. And then, of course, Twitter, Jack Dorsey, I mean, taking the, the leader of the free world off Twitter, I mean... What kind of chutzpah do you have to have for that? Well, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that decision, but they didn't take him off of Twitter until after the January 6th, 2021 riots and ransacking of the Capitol and a very, granted, ham-handed attempt to overturn an election. But it's not as though they took him off in the middle of the campaign or just because, well... We just don't want you on Twitter anymore. There, there were incidents throughout. And, tra- and the former and president had been arguing threats, for months, right, yeah. that the election was stolen, which you could imagine why people might show up at the Capitol with pitchforks if the president had been telling them that a massive fraud had been perpetrated. But you, even you don't think there was a massive I, fraud perpetrated. I would, I would stay focused, uh, at least in, in taking back Trump's America, on that that monumental error by Brad Parscale. I mean, he was, he was. I mean, in 2016, David, he was the computer geek. You know, he was the guy who never came to Trump Tower. At least I didn't see him much. And he's he's out in San Antonio, Texas, doing his like stuff, like on social media. And right. He, he did good work. Okay, right. but. At but, a good price. Trump liked him yeah, because yeah, he yeah, didn't yeah, overcharge. Yeah, it, but, but in taking back Trump's America, I explained how putting him in charge of the campaign was like, like promoting a place kicker in the NFL to quarterback. And you I think just a, don't do that. I think a lot of Republicans who wanted Trump to win would agree with you. Yeah. I think that's a good way for me to ask you sure. this question. 
uh, one that occurred to me as I was reading Taking Back Trump's America, yeah. um, which is your account of the White House and also the 2020 re-election campaign with some good stories from 2016. Um, and I want to ask you this question by first reading this passage that you wrote from on, on page 151. And, it, and I believe you're quoting yourself from a memorandum you sent to the president on October 25th, 2017. Yes. If I'm getting this correct yes. here, all right? Yes, you are. All right. In numerous a memo me- that could have changed history but did not. Okay. In numerous meetings, the president has, uh, ellipses, expressed his affection and admiration for, Chinese, for China's president, Xi Jinping. The clear danger here is that our president may be charmed into submission, which you put into quotes, and this possibility likewise represents a signal failure of President Trump's intelligence briefings. So here's what I want to ask you. Yeah. You and many others who are admirers of, of the former president talk about his, his policy skills, his political skills, um, how he can see things that others don't or saw things that others didn't. Um, and yet every time there is a shortcoming... It's somebody else's fault. His radar on China was dead on. Policy wasn't good. It's Gary Cohn's fault or Jared Kushner's fault. His political skills and his, his ability intuitively to understand where the American people are on trade and immigration are second to none. By the way, I'm not necessarily arguing these points with you, but when, yeah. the, when the re-election campaign failed, it's Brad Parscale's fault. Of course, President Trump put Brad Parscale in charge of the campaign, or maybe Jared Kushner did, but President Trump didn't overrule Jared Kushner. So how do you reconcile um, your high praise for Trump with so many of the shortcomings? And if he is as deserving of the praise as you think he is legitimately, how, can, how is he constantly outfoxed by all of these other people that he himself hired? Do me a favor, read the last sentence of that again where it just refers to the signal failure. Correct. And this possibility likewise represents a signal failure of President Trump's intelligence briefing. See, this, this raises a really important issue for any president. <clears throat> the times that I was invited to sit in on uh, the president's daily briefing with what they call the IC, mm-hmm. where they'd come in... CIA would come in, DNI, they'd give them a briefing. Um, I, was, I was appalled at the quality of that briefing, particularly with respect to communist China. And one of the, one of the things that both Steve Bannon and I preached from, from day two when we got in there is if it doesn't have to be classified, let the American people see it. And the, the, the intelligence community has a way, it's kind of like a priesthood, where they keep all this information to themselves. It's not out, let out to journalists like you or the American public. And they, they kind of launder that information in a way where they never take definitive positions. It's like this, that. It's like, and the president, I think, was um, not served well at all by the IC. I mean, when, when um, example, with um, North Korea, when we're trying to stop North Korea from developing missiles and atomic weapons uh, to uh, destroy Seattle and Chicago, <clears throat> we're putting sanctions all over everybody, okay? And, and meanwhile... The, the communist Chinese are running scams with North Korea through the Vietnamese to get oil to the North Koreans, or they're running stuff across the border. And it's like you could see that stuff, but the, the information was never presented like in a strong and definitive way about the treachery, for example, the double dealing of Xi Jinping to the president, or at least I never saw it. So... There's a lot of, I mean, I think, I think that, again, I get back to the issue of a president is only as good as the people advising him in many ways. And, and I, you know, I, I do believe that, that he should be regarded as the greatest president in modern history on the economy. 
I mean, there's no question that he understood the Keynesian trap Obama-Biden got us in, and he got us out of it. I think from a national security point of view, if you think about it and you just reflect now, it's like Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran were all kept kind of under the lid during his term because they feared him. That was all to the good. Um, But at the end of the day, my point in taking back Trump's America is that as good as he was, uh, we left some things on the table. One of the things that, that just, this, is, this will haunt me till the day I die, um, there was an executive order I wrote uh, that would have uh, held communist China accountable for the, the financial costs of, the, of COVID, would have held it responsible for the deaths to now, now well over a million people um, and would have traced back its origins to where we now believe, and rightly, and I said this all along, was at Wuhan Institute of Virology. And the reason why that executive order could have been so important was not only that would have addressed a, a key policy issue, uh, but um, it it would have allowed us to jujitsu the worst political problem the president was facing, which was to say that America was blaming him for the pandemic, blaming him for mismanaging the pandemic. That was the kind of drumbeat of CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post. It was just, and at the end of the day, if we simply could have shifted the blame to where I believe it rightly belonged to communist China, I think politically that would have been been a good result as well. But but we didn't do that. Why? <laughs> Mnuchin, Kudlow, and other people inside the White House who talked them out of it. Uh, and I want to get to the pandemic in a minute. Peter Navarro is the author of Taking Back Trump's America. I just want to press you on this one point. Sure. Because I, I'd like readers to have a better explanation of how former President Donald Trump can be one of the greatest presidents in modern history, of which I'm not here to dispute at all, but simultaneously be undone by underlings. Now, as, as you wrote um, in Taking Back Trump's America, if President Trump had simply s- signed all of the actions on Inauguration Day that I had prepared during the transition we would have dramatically changed the course of history. My True point that. here, Peter, is that you weren't hoodwinked. You listened to some of these intelligence briefings. You listened to Gary Cohn and uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Um, Fought with him every day. You weren't undone and hoodwinked or had your views completely overhauled. And yet, President Trump listened to you and listened to others, and you guys had these robust debates in the Oval. He likes to talk about that, mm-hmm. so do people who participated in them. Some of them were rather, he would encourage a rather robust, to say the least, debate. Sometimes he would join them in himself. You came out still understanding what you think is the correct way to look at the world and China and everything else, but, some, and, and, but, but Trump didn't act as though you think he should have, but somehow none of it is his fault. In other words, he was undone. So either he has these unique abilities or his 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 management abilities were not as strong as, as some people think if all it took was Mnuchin or Cohn to argue with you and him decide with them. It was never Mnuchin or Kudlow and side with them. It was like all of them. It was... Mnuchin, it was Kudlow, it was Mattis at the Pentagon, it was Tillerson at State, it was Kelly when he was chief of staff, it was Rob Porter, kind of, uh, I mentioned the staff secretary earlier, it's like one of the most important things for a president is what he or she reads at night in their evening reading packet, kind of the summary of what the press is and stuff like that. And that the staff secretary has the ability to stuff that and skew it in any way he wants. I take your point, David, but all I can say is that my observation, going back to the original sin 
of that administration to bring in people who we thought needed for staffing of, of the administration, um, that, that, that set in motion a whole chain of events where the president, particularly early on front-loaded, got, got, I think, really bad advice from the wrong people and, and history. And it's a cautionary tale for anyone who's going to occupy the Oval Office. That's why I think taking back Trump's America is as valuable as a historical analytic as it is anything else. But but I, I would say that, that most of the people, Kushner and Mnuchin aside, mo- most of them got fired. And they got fired for either incompetence or disloyalty or both when the boss figured it out. But the point is that it, it took some time. You know, instead of ha- having steel tariffs on day one, it took a year in. Instead of doing tariffs on communist China because of their economic aggression, it took like a year and a half or two years in. We we got to it, and it worked, but, boy, it was was an interesting journey, I must say. Uh, One of the interesting things I I found about taking back Trump's America um, was that it didn't strike me that there was a lot of, of... examination from you on the administration's management of the pandemic. Now, there are, and, and, I, and you focused a lot on where you thought the administration could have better messaged and, and made policy relating to communist China. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think there's a strong argument in your favor there, even if, if, if it's debatable. But the pandemic was, it was this thing that completely occupied the minds of the American people. It disrupted jobs. It, it, it killed people. And it seems that one of the reasons President Trump fell short in his re-election bid was that in the same way he was exactly where so many Americans were in 2016 on immigration and trade and China, Yes, uh, which um, even if people disagree with his handling of China, he redirected the debate on China. He simply was not where the American people were in his handling of the pandemic. Uh, talk about that. Sure, and, and remember that this is, vi- Taking Back Trump's America is volume two in the memoirs. Uh, the first uh, book, In Trump Time, um, is a detailed analysis of the pandemic and the politics of that. In fact, In Trump Time starts um, in the East Wing with the communist Chinese coming to sign the so-called skinny deal in January of 2020, I'm sitting in the audience in a cold sweat, fully aware that there are possibly bad things going on in Wuhan with a virus. And I was probably the only person in that room with that concern. But I had written, you mentioned earlier, the 2006 Coming China Wars book, Um, In that book, I actually predicted that communist China would cause a global pandemic that would kill millions. So my antenna were up. And and from that, January 2020, uh, there was a famous uh, meeting, and it it is famous, it's it's historical, of of me in the Situation Room um, on January 28th, 2020, um, the president had sent me there to bring the task force over to supporting his ban on China, travel ban, which um, in retrospect we now know saved many, many lives. And I went into that den of thieves uh, and had my first encounter with somebody who I'd never met and didn't know walked on water, but was Anthony Fauci. And Fauci, dead set against it. And I, within minutes, I was in a, a, a strenuous argument with him. Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney, uh, was at the other end. He was on Fauci's side. And uh, I left that meeting that night. I went and wrote a memo to the task force, said it that night, said, look, if you guys don't act, we're going to lose millions of Americans and it's going to cost us trillions of dollars. And that memo hit, 
task force changed its mind the next day. They couldn't cover their you-know-what on that. Uh, Mulvaney, <laughs> Mulvaney kicked me off the task force, and, and I would fight Fauci forever. But, yeah, I told the boss on two occasions to fire Fauci because I sensed at the time that Fauci really didn't understand the pandemic as well as he should have and that he was going to harm the president. Little did I know, sir, little did I know that money from NIH through Fauci had gone to the Wuhan lab to support the gain-of-function research which gave the technology to the Chinese to genetically engineer viruses. I don't know if that caused the virus, but I do know that that kind of transfer by Fauci um, implicates NIH in this. But isn't, um, and I mention this just because of your, your focus on what went wrong in 2020, wasn't um, in addition to the other problems that you mentioned and, and some of the problems you mentioned with the campaign, I think um, are, are very important pieces of analysis. Um, way advertising was spent, the way uh, strategic decisions were made, but wasn't a lot of the problem the way in which the president approached the pandemic. Uh, for the first couple of weeks, and you were there, so I'm, I'm really doing this for the audience, the, the president was functioning, as he would say, as a wartime president. Yes. Uh, Steve Bannon is among the people that encouraged him to embrace the pandemic as a type of war. You're very complimentary of Mr. Bannon in your book. He, he, did, a, he did a show, War Room Pandemic, right. in and January 2020. Correct. And at first yeah. the president would give daily updates and then yeah. let the experts yeah. speak. Um, and within about a month or so, the president seemed like he was done with the whole thing. Uh, masks were a waste of time, and why can't we just do things like normal? My point here is, even if in retrospect we were to say that was good policy, the American people, at least where they lived in the battleground states and yeah. and the areas that mattered, that's not where they were. You know, Republicans would would ridicule uh, President Biden for being in a basement, right? But he kind of represented how they felt, and that made them feel like he understood them better. I mean, isn't this a part of what went wrong? Well, again, um, taking back Trump's America only takes on so much. In Trump time um, is where I address exactly what you're saying. There's a chapter in there called The Virus Deniers, right? And my problem, you know, I'm I'm working in my office on on February 9th um, writing a series of memos that would help jumpstart looking at the vaccine, more importantly, help jumpstart therapeutics like monoclonal antibodies and remdesivir, things that would eventually save the president's lives. I'm working on that in the first week of February, and everybody in the White House, besides the president and Matt Pottinger, is saying that this is nothing. Kudlow, Mnuchin... Kushner, everybody. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> here we go. I mean, this, this is, Kudlow goes, he comes to a staff meeting, Larry Kudlow. I, I like Larry, okay, nice guy, but he's, he's a Wall Street transaction. He comes to a meeting and he goes, we got the virus under control. There's only four cases. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, logarithmic progression, okay, there's two yesterday, that means four today, eight tomorrow, 16, and within, you know, 90 days, we're going to be overwhelmed, Larry. What, what, what don't you get about that, sir? These were how these conversations would go, and Mulvaney would get pissed off at me for, for, for talking about the stuff, and yet Mulvaney, for me, was one of the worst, because um, he is, I, I described, like, in Taking Back Trump's America, the, the worst press conference in president presidential history when he gets in and as press acting chief of staff gives gives a uh, press brief and then almost gets the president impeached again and it's like this this goes back to you know man's character determines his fate Mick's problem is that he's he thinks he knows everything and therefore nobody knows nothing and it's like he was very dogmatic about it as was mark short who's been in the news recently who was the chief of staff for Vice President Pence. I mean, these guys were adamant. It's like, 
This no problem. And Kushner in the, in July, there's a great story in Taking Back Trump's America about how Kushner in July gets on Fox News and says we've turned the corner on the virus and and we'll be rocking and rolling this summer, right? And that triggered uh, this wonderful story about how Steve Bannon almost was brought back by by the president through the help of Bernie Marcus. And again, Kushner. Uh, was able to uh, beat that back. In Taking Back Trump's America, shifting gears a little bit, you talk, as we've been discussing, extensively about China. You write extensively about China. Yes. Uh, China's impact on the American economy, on the global economy, and also you know, some of how you um, learned about what, what, what you believe are uh, the very negative effects of how China operates on the American economy. Yes. I, I wanted to focus a little bit on that sure. because uh, whether people agree with you or disagree with you, I think few are as steeped in the issue of trade vis-a-vis China as, as you are. You, you have this passage early in the book where you mentioned teaching MBA students yes. and first becoming in tune to uh, China's impact on the American economy as some of them are either not getting jobs or getting jobs but making a lot less or not getting as much of their yes. MBA education paid for by their corporate employers. Uh, talk about um, your, I don't know if the right word is evolution of thinking, but the spark in your thinking, which became uh, teaching and writing on oh, how China. China operates globally. Well, just from a life point of view, the predicate for that got laid when I served in the Peace Corps from 1973 to 1976 in Thailand. And, and at during that time, um, I was able uh, to travel throughout the region, Korea, Japan, Cambodia, Laos. Where, 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 Burma was fascinating in and of itself because it was so close. And there's a large Chinese diaspora there. So I, I became very familiar with, with that part of the world. So I had kind of a, a worldview coming in. Fast forward to, I'm in UC... Irvine, uh, Irvine, California, University of Orange California, County. Irvine. Yeah, and I'm, I'm teaching fully employed MBA students who, by definition, work during the week and then come at night or on the weekends. And this is uh, circa 2003, right? And I, I begin to notice that 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 more and more of my fully employed students are losing their jobs. And I'm thinking, this is weird. Orange County has one of the most vibrant labor markets in the country. And, you know, how can this be happening? And so I, I uh, decided uh, that I'd do this thing called the China Price Project because I, I had this inkling that all these jobs were going to China. And I spent a year with, with over 100 students kind of drilling down on how communist China could charge 50% less than American manufacturers for goods. And the prevailing view was that it was just cheap labor. And the research was stunning to me because, um, sure, cheap labor played a role. And yeah, a lot of that was slave labor. So that's still unfair. But there were all these other things going on, like the currency manipulation, intellectual property theft. I mean, if you don't have to do (laughs) R&D, As a Chinese company, that that's a ton of money you save. There were there was um, uh, the state-owned enterprise model, and so that that led to the coming China Wars book and my my awareness of just the toxicity um, of China's economic aggression. I think probably one of the best TV interviews I ever did was one of those mornings on Sunday when I was like, you know, you get up, I was doing Chris Wallace on Fox, and you're a little blurry. Because you're on the West Coast at this point, right? So for you, it's a lot earlier. No, no, I was in the White House at the time. I was was right on set in this building uh, up a few floors, and and Chris hits me with, you know, what's like the similar question you did, and I come up with the seven deadly sins, just kind of popping, just... Just, I just ran through them. You know, it's the intellectually property theft, counterfeiting, the state-owned subsidies, the currency manipulation, the killing us with fentanyl, da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's just through the trilogy of books I wrote on China, I, I've become, became more and more alarmed 
the last one, Crouching Tiger, was about how you and I as consumers and our trade deficit with China effectively funds their military machine. And it's seven minutes a missile from the mainland of China hit the palace in Taiwan. And they're building asymmetric weapons, meaning they love to sink a, 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 a aircraft carrier that costs a ton to make, literally, um, you know, with a million-dollar missile. So that's, that's kind of the evolution. And in the Taking Back Trump's America book, there's a whole section on, on the problems we had being tough on China. I talk about how we, we failed on Huawei, how we failed on TikTok, how we failed on ZTE, how we weren't as aggressive cracking down on the, the, the horrific human rights abuses in Xinjiang province uh, where uh, you have the, the, the Uyghurs essentially um, in concentration camps used as slave labor and the healthiest ones are used as organ donors. I mean, that's on our watch. And I'd sit there, yes, you know, Mnuchin, I get back to that SOB, and I, that's what I felt like every time I'd have these debates. I'd be sitting in the situation room. He didn't care. He did not care. It's like it was all about the deal. So let me ask you then, and I think this is fascinating, you make a very good case for the need to constrain China Yes. At the very least. Maybe the word is containment. Maybe the word is... Maybe the word is decouple economically, because that's, I think, where we need to go economically. Fair enough. But China is also a global player, yes. right? And they are attempting to make... In, this is not just about... We, I, I think there's a good argument for decoupling a, a lot of our supply chain, uh, plant, supply chains from China. Uh, we need rare earth elements. Yes, um, we do. For our military equipment, we don't want to rely on China. We want pharmaceuticals coming out of this pandemic. We don't want to rely on China. But China fashions itself the next superpower, right? They want to supplant the United States as they the world's global power. They believe they are right now the superpower. So doesn't it run counter to the American goal of preventing that from happening um, to publicly as President Trump did, and you talk about this in Taking Back Trump's America when you write about trade and a lot of these deals, doesn't it run counter to that goal when President Trump would publicly discuss the possibility of a U.S. pullout from South Korea? And didn't it run counter uh, to that goal when the president decided, I'm purposely asking you this question. It's a great, I love this question. I love Um, this question. When the president uh, who was joined by Democrats, by the way, because it was politically toxic. Yeah. But when the president said no to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where we could have bound 11, about a dozen That's Asian a nations. That's a separate issue, mind you, than the to, South Korea to, deal. Correct. These okay. are two things. And I, that we can deal with each one of them separately. Um, we're getting a little bit toward the end of the uh, program yeah. here, so I want to slip these in together. Answer as you see fit. I'll do it quick. Um, we've got a dozen nations we can bind to us economically, given the aggressive tactics of China economically in the Pacific. Then we've got a bulwark of American military power in the Pacific because of Korea and Japan. And the president, the former president, liked to talk all the time about, you know, maybe we should just get out. Like, what are we getting for all of this? And says no to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which then has these nations going, well, who should we be with if not the United States? Weren't those wrong decisions tactically? Uh, absolutely not, and and you could you could just as easily when when we do the movie uh, taking back Trump's America, you could play either Mattis or Tillerson, right? Rex Tillerson has stayed, or Mattis at the Pentagon, because they would say they would say he, I, the boss bought me in one day, and he was just ripping on these guys because they wouldn't support his trade policy. In South Korea, all we wanted to do was get out of a bad trade deal that Hillary Clinton was the architect of. And we got out of that, and we were able to save the pickup truck industry in this country. If, if we hadn't got out of that, the pickup industry, the pickup truck industry would be gone, okay, within a few years. And so what but people didn't understand when we, when we did that is that it's all about, it's all about the deal with President Trump and, and threatening to get out of there. He knew they needed us more than we needed them. He knew threatening them would we would get our way 
And we did. And now the alliance is stronger. And the, the principle here, David, and this is really important one, this is the thing he always understood, is that when you trade off economic security, like in a bad trade deal for national security, you have neither. Okay? If you lose your automobile industry, bad trade deal to South Korea, you don't have the factory capacity you need to maintain national security. So that, that to me is like, that's, that's why you want Trump president. With respect to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the rhetoric of that in the, in the press and on Capitol Hill was exactly as you described it, that somehow it was a, it was a united front against the Chinese. From an economic point of view, it was just another NAFTA where our auto, in particular our auto parts industry, were going to be exported to Japan and Vietnam, our economic base, manufacturing base, would be further weakened, and it would not help us fight the communist Chinese. So I will, the, the, one of the, the biggest victory we had on the first business day was to get out of the TPP, and I was standing right beside the president in an iconic photo, and if you just take it in the clear light of day, that was the right economic decision. Peter Navarro, you get the last word. Peter Navarro is the author of Taking Back Trump's America. He's also the author of In Trump's Time. Thanks so much for joining us here on Book TV. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you, David. Take care. Hey there, thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out About Books. You'll learn about the latest nonfiction books and bestselling authors. In each episode, we report our bestseller lists and book reviews from around the country, and you'll hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. Check it out. About Books. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.